It's no secret that Brazilian programmer Lake Feppard got his start in the industry making Sonic fan games, and it's not really all that surprising either, as his first commercial title, Spark the Electric Jester, features many nuances found within the Sonic series and riffs on some of the conventions set by the series, although many other games could be listed in the pool of likely influences on the 2017 2D platformer. Spark featured two main campaigns, the more traditional of the two being Spark Story, but after completing the game you'd get access to Fark Story, a unique flavour of Spark that contained many similarities but for the most part plays very differently. Whereas Spark has power-ups, Fark has parrying. Spark has a meta for which items are optimal to use in certain situations, Fark has to take into consideration where he can purposely damage himself to gain attack power from a parry. It's this base that was carried over into the creation of Fark the Electric Jester, known now by the much more on-the-nose title of Spark the Electric Jester 2. As you'll see however, it wasn't as easy as a few new levels and a fresh title screen. I'm Green Viperate, and on behalf of Radio Sega, this is my review of Spark the Electric Jester 2. One day I'll wear another face! Lake's previous experience as a programmer can be summarised by his engine of choice, Click Team Fusion. While certainly not child's play, the engine made programming a little easier than opening a notepad and writing in a language incomprehensible to most. After spending multiple games refining the Sonic Worlds engine within Click Team, it came as a surprise to everyone when Lake announced that his new title would be moving over to Unity, and it would be throwing all of his muscle memory out the window as this title would be his first full 3D game. He'd experimented with Unity seemingly a few years earlier when he developed Hedge Physics, another Sonic fan games engine and the engine which Spark 2 is built upon. It was probably about time for another engine change though, as Spark 1 ran into heavy performance issues resulting in a less than positive reception being built around the game, even if it was incredibly undeserved. While having some positives from the outside, the negative is that this could have some rough edges and suffer from first game syndrome. So let's explore the game and see if my concerns ring true. First up, let's explore the game's length. The game isn't too dreadfully long. Lake chose to keep it short, but we'll be deciding whether it's sweet later on. I counted 14 stages, although the game might track them differently, and I won't spoil how many bosses you'll run into on your journey. I caught the timer on my first playthrough around the 3 hour mark, although I took a few short breaks and didn't speed through every single level. I expect that the first average playthrough will take the same exact time as mine, and I think most people will be able to cut that down to 2 hours if you choose to skip cutscenes and iron out any gameplay mistakes you made on the first run. Speaking of runs, I think the length of this game will go down a treat with speedrunners, as well as the level design. The ranking system added to this game will also encourage competition long before you choose to take it to the speedrun.com leaderboards. There's a few little issues I'd like to raise in regards to the level design, some for specific levels and others generally. I saw the concern in early demos that the levels felt very empty, and while nowhere near as extreme in the final, I'd have to agree on a very small scale. Although there's plenty to do in the levels regardless of your playstyle, enemies can feel a little scattered out and there's points where you'll be expecting to see some sort of enemy or trap but nothing. Most traps are fairly easy to avoid as well. Although yes, it should be easy with hindsight or just good vision to see these obstacles and avoid them. Sometimes just looking at set pieces clues you up that you're about to meet an unrelated fiery death for example. The only stage that I like to name and shame is stage 12, as it had an anti-gravity gimmick similar to Shadow the Hedgehog specifically, which I got on with there but after some trial and error, but I don't like it here. You must run up to the end of the platform and then touch the gravity changer to flip it upside down. Except the issue comes in when you must jump into it to activate it, as it's in midair. Many deaths came from me simply forgetting to jump into it, as my brain's autopilot mode told me that I'd make it without jumping, only to SA2 shadow my way down back to the planet I came from. As a whole though, I do quite like the level design, but I can see the pacing of stages and set pieces being an issue for the more rabid of players. 
Personally, I feel that Spartan 2 is a very do-it-your-own-way type of game. If you're unsure what I mean by this, I've partially summarised my points into some bullet points which I'll now read out. You can choose to play it with more focus on speed or more on combat. This point is entirely dependent on you. It's subjective as to which playstyle you enjoy more and each have their benefits and drawbacks. Playing strictly fast will nab you medals for beating the part-times, whereas playing strictly combat focused will nab you medals for beating score requirements. Your first playthrough will likely be a mixture of both and will therefore circumvent the medal collecting, but each player will find their groove and their preference. The parry system is very lenient. If you choose to, the parrying system allows you to cheese your way through bosses. You don't ever need to get a perfect block and move which charges your special attacks, because as long as you get a semi-block you avoid taking damage and you can whittle away at the enemy's health without using any high power attacks. Of course, if you love your action games, in particular Metal Gear Rising, parrying will feel right at home, as will attacking in general and you don't need to worry about taking your sweet time on these bosses and playing it safe, as the bosses reward skillful play and you'll find yourself clearing them in no time at all unlike a filthy casual. Not to say that some enemies or bosses won't give you a run for your money however, especially on the higher difficulties, so watch your back at all times. Who even needs power-ups? On my first playthrough I picked up a few abilities off the bat, but once I lost them I found myself with no real desire to pick them back up again. I beat the rest of the game with Fark's default moveset and although it made my life a bit more difficult, it was still very possible with a bit of determination. My playthrough on the final game granted me with access to the shop feature, which allowed me to trade in various collectibles for goodies, but more importantly in this case, abilities. This saved me having to scowl through the crevices of a level just to find a power-up I'd lose in a matter of seconds, as I could now just open a menu before entering a stage instead. The game does make it pretty easy to get power-ups, but if you don't want them, why bother? If you want them though, go nuts and pick your favourite. How much pain would you like to experience, mortal? Although I didn't get to experience it in my original playthrough as I was playing on the final Patreon build, although it was extremely close to final with only a few changes, the game has a difficulty select. Spark 1 had a very Kirby-like difficulty curve, with the stages progressively getting harder but the bosses giving you a bit of a run for your money, and then the difficulty would be slightly eased off for the next stage or next part. Spark 2 definitely still has this difficulty curb, but this difficulty select thankfully gives the player some time to ease into the game if they're not feeling comfortable with all the mechanics at hand just yet. One thing that slightly spoils this feature though is the fact that it can't be changed mid-playthrough, which somewhat undermines the point of having it there in the first place. But with that in mind, you'll need to know your strengths before heading into a story mode run. I'll stop with the armchair developing though now and head on over into something that can make or break the game for you, the controls. first point of contention with the controls has to be the camera. At points it can feel a tad fidgety. The camera never feels as unhelpful as the Sonic Adventure titles, but its problem comes from another aspect. The game uses a free camera system controlled by the right stick, and unlike many platformers, it's rare that the camera will control itself or lock. Due to the freedom this game imposes, it doesn't really cause all that much of an issue, and a lock camera would hurt these stages. But there's some sections where the free camera does affect gameplay. At some point the camera impacted the way Fark moved, which led to a couple of cheap deaths. There are some points where you're going to need good multitasking skills, because while a joystick approach is much more controllable in say a first person shooter, focusing on the high speed that this game offers while fighting small movements with the camera system will test your concentration skills, so I'm personally of the opinion that perhaps the speed section should have completely locked the camera to avoid all distractions. It was at this point when I decided to try out various control methods to see whether maybe my trusty Xbox One controller just wasn't cutting it. 
I added the DualShock 4 and Switch Pro controller to the pile, both of which are officially supported through Steam, and for the sake of testing, I threw my GameCube controller as a wildcard, which Steam detects as a generic controller. All of them, as expected, worked perfectly, although I'm not sure how much of that is down to the game and how much is due to Steam itself, but most controllers with X or D input support will work thanks to Steam, and the game plays to their advantage by adjusting dead zones and sensitivity. Or maybe this is a Steam feature again, I'm not sure, but I'll give the points to the game. I also threw in one more control method for the sake of it, keyboard and mouse. It only made sense after all considering I'm playing the game on PC. I had little to no hopes for this control scheme considering Lake himself during the release of one of the game's demos mentioned how the game's keyboard and mouse controls weren't up to scratch. I messed about with this method for a couple of levels and wouldn't you know it, perhaps due to some control overhaul, this feels like the way the game was meant to be played. All of my issues with using a controller suddenly make sense once I put my keyboard and mouse into use. The reason the camera has so much influence over Fark's movement is because you're meant to keep him running forward using the W key and then control his general direction with the mouse, with A and D being used for a half strafe half turn. Attack buttons being placed on a mouse feel perfectly natural and I'd be able to say that if you're picking up this game, ditch the controller and go with this control scheme. But this control method still does introduce a few issues. The main one I noticed is that the game seems to have issues with mouse exclusivity, as with little to no effort my mouse cursor would pop out the window and while it would still work in game, it severely hampered my camera movement as I could no longer make sharp turns and the camera would get stuck because my mouse was against the side of the screen. For reference, I was playing in 720p windowed with two monitors with the game on the left monitor. In no time at all from starting a stage, my mouse cursor will be pressed up against the right edge of the second screen. This issue is even more strange when factoring in that it wasn't in any of the demos I played, nor the beta builds. And interestingly, it still happens in full screen, and the only way I could get it to go away was by disconnecting the second monitor and playing in full screen. As much as I love using the keyboard and mouse, I'd recommend sticking to a controller until this issue can be fixed. Also in the oversights category, wall jumping is an absolute pain. When you reach a high wall, you have to make a choice. Do you want to keep the camera in a still position and wrestle back and forth with the A and D keys, or do you want to move the camera and have it quickly snap back behind you every time you make a jump? Neither is in the slightest bit comfortable nor easy, and my first encounter with a wall was absolute hell, whereas I had no issues whatsoever with this on a controller. Overall, the game controls pretty well no matter if you're using a controller or keyboard and mouse, but each control scheme has its oversights, some more annoying for some users than others. While I fell in love with the keyboard and mouse, glitches left me unable to use it and I wound up using the Xbox One controller for the rest of my time with the game, which admittedly I still liked, but just not as much, and even then it still had its own flaws. Let's finally take a look at something which I feel will be much less divisive, the story. The writing in this game has that classic lake charm. It's a bit stilted at points and is very on the nose, but this time thankfully lacks a lot of spelling and grammatical errors unlike the first game, although some still slip through the cracks. Also in the thankful category, I'm thankful that the dialogue has been rewritten since the April demo. The original script for the game viewable within the demo contained excessive swearing, most of which felt ham-fisted and try-hard for a game series that feels way more down-to-earth than some of the characters in that build let on. The final script is much more reasonable, but still feels stop-start in the exact same way that Chrono Adventure and Spark 1 did. Although that's part of the charm in my opinion, and in the case of indie games, I'd much rather have the story straight from the mouth of the developer rather than a dime a dozen professional writer. I didn't really want to spoil the plot, but there's some things that need to be discussed here in regards to the bigger picture, but I'll start with a summary. Now's your chance to get out though if you want to experience the game blind. Fark is a robot designed to befriend and backstab the first game's villain Freyam. 
Spark ends up defeating Fark and Freyum in the first game, and we start this game with Fark being repaired by Dr. Armstrong. The Doc is then kidnapped by a mysterious figure, who we learn is connected to Freyum, who happens to be back along with a new gaggle of henchmen. It's your job as Fark to insert the metaphorical dagger into Freyum's back, or rather in this case to literally kill him while enduring the various hijinks and tricks of his other crew members along the way. Oh right, and we should probably save the Doctor, I guess. A simple plot brings simple twists and a simple resolution. A number of our friends end up being Freyam's agents all along, and after a quick and predictable battle we kill them and we're on our way, only to run into someone we know is our enemy. Oh also, Fark is Freyam's son of sorts, designed to be an exact clone of the original Freyam as the Freyam we know, throughout the rest of the game is actually controlled by the real one, because that's his weakness and he needed a more powerful body? I probably horribly misrepresented that and got most of the aspects wrong, but that's because I'm still unsure as to what this entire ordeal means. Fark starts the game by telling us that he's designed to backstab Freyam, yet he wasn't actually built for that purpose? Why does he believe that that's his only purpose? And how does he have complete free will when he's in exact clone of Freyam? A lot of this is chalked up to memory loss, but that still doesn't explain it. It's also revealed at the end of the game that Fark can transform into a much more powerful form, something that comes completely out of nowhere for an admittedly awesome and adrenaline pumping boss fight something that Lakes games are always pretty good at. The story as a concept is good, but so many plot points feel completely tacked on, and as a result it leads to many plot holes or complete ass pulls of concepts you think would have much more significance. Although it wouldn't fix the problem of the random transformation, a running plot point could have been that Fark had been feeling, say, twitches or general feelings that indicated to the player that he's destined for greater power but not fully giving it away. As an individual, I would look at the majority of this plot as objectively poor, although I'm expecting people to correct me and say that it's subjective. While the good characterisation and usually funny dialogue do add some positives to this side of the game, it's probably for the best that you ignore the plot and focus on the game's many strengths instead. But we've already covered gameplay, so it's probably for the best that we moved on to the sound. You'd expect sound to be our speciality here at Radio Sega, and you'd be entirely correct. However, we don't really have anything here to critique. At all. Since the Sage 2012 version of Sonic before the sequel, Lake has had a dedicated sound team score each of his games, with two exceptions. This game isn't one of those, as this game is jam-packed with a completely original soundtrack. There is one track reused from Spark 1, that being the vocal special boss theme. Although I didn't take any issues with that, as it was hidden behind beating three different campaigns, two of which are brutally hard, unless you have the game soundtrack. FM City in this game happens to be a remix of the FM City theme from the first game, except much more rocking this time around in order to fit with the higher energy start of the game. Unless I'm missing something out, every other track in this game is new and infectiously catchy. You've been hearing them throughout this review and I'll leave some out for spoiler reasons, but I really can't fault the soundtrack at all. The first game's OST saw a release through the game music label known as Materia Collective, who then dished it out onto multiple streaming platforms, Bandcamp and iTunes. As of the writing and editing of this review, no such release for this game has been confirmed by the artists, and Lake had no involvement in the release of previous OSTs so could not clue me up on what was happening this time around. Let's not be around the bush though, this game's music will likely wind up on YouTube before the official release, and that's aided this time around by Unity being a little more open than Click Team, although I won't advocate you ripping the music and uploading it for your own gain, nor will I tell you how to do such things. Sound design isn't just about the music though, it's also about anything that bleeps and bloops, which happens to be a lot of things in this game, but we're talking sound effects. 
A whole bunch of them are reused from Spark 1, and I'll let you decide for yourself how you feel about that, but I'm of the opinion that they were good there, and they're good here. They're what I've come to expect to hear when Spark or Fark are on screen, and I'm sure they'd make it into a potential third game if that were to happen. There probably are a few new sounds scattered in too, but I wouldn't know how to identify them, and if I could, would you really want to listen to me put them in an onomatopoeic list? Not to devalue the rest of the game, but sound is by far the strongest aspect, and it's not all down to just listening to the soundtrack. It's down to how the sound effects and music interact with the action and chaos on screen, something which feels perfected in this game. A save not necessarily the best till last, but something that's worth mentioning until last. Since this is a PC game, it's time for those oh so important specs. I'm running the game on a GeForce 1050Ti with 16 gigs of RAM and a <coughs> Intel Pentium G870. Moving on, the Steam page recommends you have a GTX 760 with an i3 or a GTX 960 with an i5 with 8GB of RAM either way, however mileage will always vary because nothing is ever consistent on PC. When not recording, I was able to run at 1080p 60fps on high with a few drops, whereas I tended to stick with 720p windowed on medium for recording. On that note, on my PC this game didn't play ball too well with recording software. The game constantly ran my CPU up to 100% usage, something which no game ever does, and it would do this no matter the setting, rendering most recording software useless off the bat. I could only get the game to record using Shadowplay, an Nvidia feature which doesn't like my PC all that much, and here it did either, as I had to hard reset my PC to stop the recording. And when I checked back the footage, I would notice small bits of lag every once in a frequent while. What I'm saying here is that, once again, your mileage will vary on your PC, but even with my weak CPU I didn't encounter all that many issues with performance. Overall, Spark the Electric Jester 2 is still a good game in my opinion. The hands-off, do-it-your-own-way approach to gameplay is one that will please more than it will divide, as it caters to both your needs and wants and not the needs and wants of others. While the story leaves a lot to be desired, the dialogue and characters themselves are interesting and despite the lack of screen time for some, I did find myself attached to some of the characters I met due to their charming personality. It goes without saying that the soundtrack is superb, although with the same team that's been perfecting their style since 2012, that comes as no surprise. Considering that I could only come up with one major flaw, but many positives, that's enough in my book to be able to recommend you Spark the Electric Jester 2, available right now for £15.79 on Steam.